Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We have a few hundred uh, friends that are in our overflow this morning, and we want to say thank you for being here, and we're so glad to be able to worship together. We thankful, we're very thankful for technology. Thank you, choir and orchestra and all of our tech team, as, uh, and Pastor Thomas and the team as they led us in worship this morning. Also, in the chair in front of you, I'd like for everyone to take one of these cards. Everyone. That means you, sir, and you, ma'am, and you, everybody in here, and those of you that are in the overflow as well. And at the, what I'd like for you to do is just to put your name. We want everyone to let us know about a decision you're going to make today. Everyone, we want to make a decision, even if you've been a member of this church forever. We want everyone to make a decision today. And you say, why do I need to fill this out? Because you have no idea what God's going to do the end of our time today. Sacred is chapter five. I want to pray and then we're going to get into God's word. For the Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. God, what an awesome day. The day that you have made. We'll never have a day like this until, Father, the next Sunday because we get to worship with you again. But Father, I pray that today you would do miracles in this room, miracles through the overflow room, miracles for those watching online. Father, that you would take people that are far from you and change them and make them completely new. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We know we live in a very broken world right now with wars and rumors of wars, with diseases, with violence. And just as we say, you are risen, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, let's stand as we read God's word, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, there's one you can read on the screens. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
This is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now all together, let's say verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> where do you get your news from? Where, where did you find out about 9-11? You want to hear something sobering? Nobody in high school today was alive when the, ten, when the Twin Towers went down at 9-11. Where were you when you first heard about COVID-19 and they basically shut down the world? You remember that night when the NBA shut down and then the NCAA tournament shut down because they were afraid Kentucky was going to win? <laughs> Where did you hear the news about Russia invading you, the, the Ukraine? Where did you hear the news about the slap heard around the world at the Oscars? A Pew study found that 80% of Americans get their news digitally. 48% of Americans get their news from social media, which we all know is a very trustworthy source for news. The news tries to inform us of human history as it's happening. There's always controversy over who writes the narrative of history and who shares that narrative with the world. Have you ever heard of fake news? People giving you a distorted view of reality to fit their own agenda. Cable news, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, all have a bias that's framed around a certain opinion or conviction rather than reality. We hear day after day bad news fake news, political pundits, and we have a world that is longing for good news. See, the world that we live in is constantly trying to explain what's wrong with the world, constantly putting forth solutions to how things should be changed, but yet none of those solutions ever work. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only good news in a world full of bad news. Paul here in 2 Corinthians is explaining to them and to us why he lived the way he lived. He says that the basis of his life was the gospel. That word gospel, it's a churchy word. Maybe you're new to church. Maybe this is your first time ever in a church and you're hearing that word gospel. Well, it's not a word that was invented by Jesus and the disciples. It wasn't a word invented by the apostle Paul. It was a word that was already in the Greek language at the time. And the original definition for the word gospel was news of a great historical event, news of a victory in war, news of a birth or an arrival of a new king. It was such news that changed the listener's condition. It was news that impacted your everyday life. It was news that also required a response once you've heard it. So uh, back when the Greeks defeated the Persians at the Battle of Marathon in 940 BC, they sent messengers, evangelists, who proclaimed the gospel, the good news, to the cities all throughout Greece. And they would go, these evangelists would proclaim, we have fought for you, we have won, now you're no longer slaves, no longer in fear, you are free. 
And if you've ever ran 26.2 miles in a race called a marathon, it's out of that moment where one of the uh, messengers was sent from Marathon to Athens to share the message, the gospel to the city of Athens. And it's, and it's been told according to history that he got into the city. He said, we have fought for you. We have won. You're no longer slaves. You're free. And he died of exhaustion. And so would I if I ran a marathon. <laughs> but this was news. News that changed people's status. News that brought joy to their hearts. And that's why God and the Bible says that the gospel is good news. See, the gospel is different than religion. Religion is advice that tells you how to live a better moral life so that maybe you can connect with God. The gospel is good news that God connects with you, not on the basis of what you've done or what you haven't done, but all on what Jesus has done in history for you. Jesus has fought for you. Jesus has won for you. You're no longer slaves, no longer prisoners. You have been set free. And it's that news that changed Paul's life. It's that news that changed my life. And it's that news that can change anyone's life. It's news that Jesus lived a life I could not live that Jesus died a death I should have de deserved to die, and Jesus won a victory I could not win by rising triumphantly over death, hell, and the grave. And so the good news of Jesus' victory, winning a war I can never win, transforms our past and guarantees our future. So today, if you trust Christ as your Savior, or if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, this news transforms your past, guarantees your future. Let's dive in. Number one, Jesus transforms our past. He says in verse 16, from now on. From now on, pointing back to verse 15. From now on, therefore, from that point in history where Jesus died and was raised from the cross to the empty tomb, from that point forward, my life for the rest of my life is different. From now on, things are different. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. He says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now, that seems kind of weird. It doesn't mean that he didn't see people as people. It meant that he doesn't see people the way he used to see people. We don't see people the way we used to. We don't see things the way we used to. See, for the apostle Paul, before Jesus came into his life, he, he only saw life through one way, one, through one lens, and that is he saw everybody based on performance. See, he was a very devoutly religious person. He judged everybody. He made a list. He checked it twice to see who was naughty or nice. He was very arrogant, very proud. He, he, he did not like those who did not like him. He was threatened by anyone who threatened his way of life. And if you read about Paul's life, even Paul says that before Jesus entered into his life, he was miserable, living constantly for the performance trap, perfectionism in his performance. But to those who, whom Paul is writing, the Corinthians, they were affluent. They were worldly. They were self-reliant. They saw life through the lens of appearance. They judged everyone based on outward appearance. As a matter of fact, I've been to Corinth numerous times, and, and archaeologists will say that one thing that Corinth is known for outside of its Corinthian architecture and, and marble is the overwhelming number of mirrors. 
As a matter of fact, they have found more mirrors in the ancient city of Corinth than any other archaeological site in the world because it was a mirror manufacturing capital. The people of Corinth were obsessed with how they looked, with their beauty, with their power, with their prestige, with their money, and they were miserable. The great theologian Jim Carrey, who is also a pet detective from Collier County, said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. You know, our world judges people. You judge people by their appearance or by their performance. We, we judge people by how fast can you run? How much money do you make? How many followers do you have? How many degrees do you have? How, who do you know? What, what do you do? How good are you? It's a rat race of what have you done for me lately? It's exhausting, right? You can go from a hero to a zero. If you don't believe me, ask the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. But Paul says, from now on. I don't know if you've ever saw the musical, The Greatest Showman. It's a fictional story, a musical about the life of P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum in this musical realizes that he had been living for fame and for money and for fortune and for, for everything else other than the most important things in his life, and it was destroying his life. And the, there's a moment towards the end of the movie where after this, uh, his building burned down, that he has this moment of repentance where he sees that everything that he'd ever built and dreamed of and schemed for was burning down in front of him. And so he has that moment where he sings that song that says, from now on, one of the verses says, for years and years I chased their cheers, the crazy speed of always needing more. But when I stop and see you here, I remember who all this is for. From now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights. From now on, what's waited till tomorrow starts tonight, starts tonight. Let this promise in me start like an anthem in my heart from now on, from now on. Now, he could sing it better than me. But it's from now on. Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection changes how we see and think about everything from now on. From now on, things are different. From now on, I see and think about the world different. From now on, I think about myself different. From now on, I see other people different. From now on, I no longer am shackled to my past. From now on, everything is different. From now on. I'm no longer imprisoned by the opinions of others. I'm no longer bound by the thoughts that I hold captive about my appearance and my performance. From now on, it's different. And that's why he says in verse 17, therefore, because Jesus has set us free from the performance trap and the appearance vacuum. He says, if anyone is in Christ, 
That is, if anyone shares in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if you tr- believe in Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus, if anyone is in Christ, as Jim said, he is a new, she is a new creation. It echoes back to the new creation that will come at the new heaven and the new earth. But you don't have to wait for the new heaven and the new earth to be new now. When you surrender your life to Jesus, you are reborn. A radical, pervasive, spiritual recreation in your inner being happens and you are a totally new person from the inside out. From now on, a new creation. He says the old has passed away. The old identity that defines you, the old identity that destroyed you is gone. We no longer have to live in the bondage of our past, the old habits, hangups, and heartbreaks. We're no longer defined by who we are or what we used to do or what we used to be. Because just as Jesus died and was buried, so our old life is dead and buried with him. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. Behold, be amazed. The new has come. That word has come is in the perfect tense in the Greek. I know that blesses your heart. But the perfect tense means an action done in the past with ongoing results. So just as Jesus is alive, he died and is now alive, that's an action in the past. So we are being made new. That's the ongoing results. And being made new is not just new in sequence, it's new in quality. We are not what we used to be anymore. Jesus came to make all things new. The gospel tells us that because Jesus is alive, we can be new We have a new life, a new identity, a new family, a new hope, and a new destiny. All is new. See, the gospel isn't become someone different. The gospel is be who you already are in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus died. He rose from the dead, defeated your enemy so that you can be forever new. I don't know if you watched the master's last weekend, one of my favorite moments is the final round right after church, preaching messages and falling asleep, listening to that wonderful sound of Jim Nance and then waking up at the end to see who won. Can I get a witness on that one? Anybody else want to, we'll testify in a moment. Well, Scotty Scheffler, 25 year old, won the masters and Augusta, the number one player in the world. And if you followed, and probably many of you have, you followed the fact that he is a believer. Jim Nance actually said in his master's coverage that Scotty and his caddy, Ted Scott, um, met at a PGA Bible study. Before he won, he was interviewed. And here's what he said. Many of you have probably read this already. He says, the reason why I play golf is I'm trying to glorify God with all he's done in my life. So for me, my identity isn't a golf score. Like Meredith, his wife said, if you win this golf tournament today, if you lose this golf tournament by 10 shots, if you never win another golf tournament again, I'm still going to love you. You're still going to be the same person. Jesus loves you and nothing changes. And here's what he says. He says, all I'm trying to do is glorify God. And that's why I'm here. And that's why I'm in this position. Because Scotty Scheffler was not defined by winning the Masters or being the number one player in the world. His 
definition. His identity is found in Jesus Christ alone. Because Jesus won for Scotty Scheffler what Scotty Scheffler couldn't win for himself. A right relationship with God. Jesus transforms your past. That's good news. Secondly, Jesus guarantees our future. He says in verse 18, all this is from God. God's plan from the beginning was to defeat our enemies, destroy evil without destroying us. And in verse 21, how does that happen? How can God destroy evil without destroying us who are evil? Here's how. For our sake, God the Father made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God sent Jesus to live a perfect life, a life that we can never live in a million lifetimes. Jesus sent, was sent by the Father to die for our sins in exchange for us on the cross. And God raised Jesus from the dead, proving that our salvation is complete and our future is secure, making us the very righteousness of God. The gospel tells us that because of Jesus, when God sees me, he does not see my sin, he sees my savior. That Jesus did everything necessary for me to have a right relationship with God. Jesus ended the hostility between God and me. He paid my debt on the cross. It is paid in full. I need not fear my future now because Jesus has secured my future for me. A few years ago, uh, April and I, got a letter in the mail. This was from a debt collecting service for a medical bill. I opened it up and it was a medical bill three years old. And it was for one of my kids when they were born. And I opened this letter and it scared me to death. I thought, what about my credit score? What am I going to do? How how did this happen? What are we going to do? Are they going to repossess Andrew? <laughs> and so I knew I had paid this. And so after a little digging, I knew I paid the bill. I called them and I said, said, hey, I got this letter in the mail. I want you to check your records. I know, I'm pretty sure I paid Andrew off. <laughs> Although I wouldn't mind saying, if you want him back, just, <laughs> just kidding. So they went to their little computer and they looked in there. Yes, Mr. Brumbach, uh, you have no debt. You're paid off. You can throw that letter away. It's useless. I want to say, well, why did you send a sucker to begin with? <laughs> you know, the wages of sin is death. And God's justice demands my death. And Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and in doing so, he paid my debt. And when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, the debt that I owed is paid in full. So if the devil tries to tell you or me that we still owe God and we're going to hell, we can say to him, shut up, devil. Check your records. Jesus paid it all. You better run. And that's what Paul's saying here. Paul told the Corinthians earlier that those who are in Christ have nothing to fear when they die. 
In 2 Corinthians 4.14, he says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus, bring us with you and bring us with you into his presence. In chapter five, he talks about death. And he says in verse six, we're always of good courage. We're always in good courage because Jesus has made our future secure. His death and resurrection have destroyed the fear of death because Jesus is alive. We have a future. If Jesus is still dead, you have no future. And because he lives All fear is gone. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter two, says that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. People are afraid of death. I know that maybe not something you wanted to talk about on Sunday, but... Death is a reality. Sigmund Freud, who has occasional nuggets of wisdom sandwiched between mountains of nonsense, said that the fear of death dominates our consciousness. Whether we want to admit it or not, people are obsessed with death or they repress it. Death is terrifying because it feels like it's the end. People feel the pressure to need to experience everything they can. Many people have bucket lists, those things that they want to do before they kick the bucket. People are in panic when they look in the mirror and they see that they're molting. (laughs) And they recognize this atrophy is the process of death. All of you in this room, all of us are dying. And many people are obsessed with leaving a legacy and being remembered. People fear what lies after death because for many, it's the unknown. But yet Jesus defeated death by rising from the dead, making the unknown known. Jesus went to a funeral and he shook things up. He said to the sisters of the guy who died, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Jesus spoke to the tomb of Lazarus and Lazarus came out of the grave. But that just was a foretaste of what would happen three days after Jesus was put into a borrowed tomb where Peter says in Acts chapter two, verse 24, that God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it's not possible for Jesus to be held by it. Just as death had no claim on Jesus, it has no claim on anyone who is in Jesus. We may physically die, but death now becomes an entryway to eternal life with God forever. All death does to a believer is make their life infinitely better. Secularists argue that Christians are selfish that they're egotistical, claiming moral superiority of having an afterlife. Richard Dawkins and other humanists will say that the idea of a heavenly reward is a cosmic bribe. They say that it's shallow, it's mercenary, to live a moral life, mainly so that it will pay off in eternal bliss. But those who say that don't understand the hope that we have. For my hope is not in my moral record. My hope is in his My hope is not in my life, but my hope is in his death and in his resurrection. Tim Keller says that most religious systems teach an afterlife, 
but it's conditioned on you living a morally good and religiously observant life. Christianity offers a gift as salvation is a gift. It does not belong to good people, but to people who admit that they're not good enough and that they need a savior. Christians do not approach death uncertain whether they will be found worthy of eternal life. They believe in Jesus who alone has a record worthy of eternal life and they are secure in him. D.L. Moody, an old preacher from a long time ago, said this. He said, someday you're going to read in the newspapers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I will be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, gone out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body unto his own glorious body. That was not a fist of defiance shaken at an uncertain darkness that lay ahead. That was a courageous hope based on the future that Jesus has secured for his people. The gospel is good news that whoever believes in him has their past transformed and their future guaranteed. All other religions and philosophies in this world tell us what to do. But only the good news of the gospel of Jesus tells us what he has done for us. Jesus has fought for us. Jesus has won the battle for us. We are no longer slaves, no longer prisoners. We have been set free. Let me end with this. A few years ago, I was in Poland. And while in Poland, I, I, I wanted to go to the concentration camp called Auschwitz-Birkenau. Auschwitz-Birkenau was a concentration camp set up by the Nazis, one of the most notorious camps. This camp, along with many other camps, were set up for Jews and political dis dissidents to be systematically murdered. As the prisoners would be taken from various cities all around Europe, put in Railroad cars, they would get off those trains, herded like cattle. And at Auschwitz, they would either be taken straight to the crematorium or they would be taken into the prison camp. All throughout the concentration camps around Europe, every concentration camp had a sign at the entrance that said this, Arbeit. Mark Frey, or work sets you free. This was actually a German slogan. It was created in 1873 by a German man, and it became part of the propaganda of the Nazi Germany regime. The prison guards, as these people came off, were very nice to the prisoners. They saw the sign, work sets you free. And they told the prisoners, if you worked really hard, then you could survive this camp and you can get out alive. Just work hard. Work sets you free. Well, that was a lie. 
Instead of work leading to freedom, it led to slavery. Instead of work leading to life, it led to death. Millions of prisoners would die in the hands of their captors at this camp and many other camps. See, for these prisoners to be set free, it would require a war to be fought for them. It would require a war to be fought and won by somebody else. Someone else had to come and set them free. They could never set themselves free. And so on January the 27th, 1945, the Allied army came to Auschwitz-Birkenau and set 7,000 prisoners free. See, Satan will tell you, the world will tell you, religion will tell you, try harder, do more, be better. The world will say it's all about your performance. The world will say it's all about your appearance. And if you do these things, you can secure your future and you might be able to make it to heaven when you die. But that's a lie from an enemy that's already defeated. We needed someone outside of us to save us. We needed someone to rescue us. And the good news of Easter is that Jesus has come. Jesus is one and he is here to set you free. For whom the sun sets free is free indeed. He came to set you free from the old way of life. He came like he came to Jim and Sam to set them free from the bondage of addiction. He came to set you free from the fear of death and to give you a future that money cannot buy and death cannot take away. But the way to freedom is not work. The way to freedom is surrender. It's trusting in Jesus and his work for you so that when you do, from now on, the old is passed away and the new has come. Would you today surrender your life to Jesus? If you want to be free, surrender your life. Put your trust in Jesus, not your good works. Good people go to hell every day. Save people go to heaven when they die. You say, well, what does it mean to believe? Well, you're practicing it right now. You're sitting in that chair. Now, I'm sure that when you came in here and sat in these chairs, maybe you're in the overflow room, you're sitting in that chair, you're watching online, you're sitting in the chair there. When you're sitting, you're putting trust in. Now, none of you that came into this room picked up the chair and said, where's this made at? Where's this made? Where was this, you know, is this gonna hold me up? No, you just sat down. And in the act of sitting down, you trusted that the weight of your body would be held up by the strength of that chair. Well, that's what it means to put your faith in Jesus. It means to put the weight of your past, the guilt of your present, and the fear of your future in the seat of God's grace bought for you by Jesus. And many of you in this room, you know that, you know that. You know that Jesus is powerful enough, he loves you enough, that he's done enough, but instead of sitting in the chair of his grace, you'd rather squat in your own, unrighte your own righteousness. And you're tired, and you're worn out, and you keep on trying, and you keep on trying, just like Jim was trying, just like Samantha were trying. They were trying and trying and trying, and they finally hit rock bottom. And then, they sat 
in the chair of grace and they surrendered their life to Jesus. And today, stop running. Stop trying to save yourself and sit in the chair of God's grace. It is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he can do for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. No one's looking around. If you're here and you say, Pastor, I'm not sure that I'm saved. I'm not sure that I'm a Christian. I'm having all these weird feelings. I, I, I was raised in the church. I was baptized as a baby. I've been wondering here and there, but I know there's something broken inside of me. And you're talking and you're making me feel weird, preacher. I don't like this. That's the Holy Spirit talking to you right now. And today, you can lay your burdens at the foot of the cross. You can sit in his chair of grace right now. So if you want to trust Jesus as your Savior, if you want to be saved, all you have to do is ask. Would you pray with me? And those of you in the room who are believers, would you pray for those who aren't? If you want to trust Jesus as your Savior right now, will you pray a prayer like this with me? Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. And I'm tired of trying to. But I believe you died on the cross for me and I believe you rose from the dead for me. And I ask right now, Jesus, that you would forgive me of my sins and that you would save me. I surrender my life to you. In Jesus' name, keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. Father, I pray that for those who just trusted you as their Savior, you would give them courage to make it known. In Jesus' name, amen. You can look at me. How can I make it known? I want everyone in this room to fill this card out. You say, I don't need to fill this out. Here's why you do, because you're filling this card out, even if you're already a Christian, may give courage to someone who just trusted Christ to put their information down to let us know so that we can help them in their walk with Jesus. So with this little card, we want everyone to fill out, and you can put a letter in the little box. A is, I'm already a believer, please pray for me. And if you have a prayer request, you can write it on the back. B is, I'm already a believer, but I need to be baptized. I need to follow the Lord and showing the world that I'm not ashamed to be a Christian. You say, oh, I was baptized as a baby, as an infant. Well, that's great. That's a promise ring. But when you get baptized after salvation, that's a wedding ring. It shows the world you're a Christian. But maybe today you said, I just trusted Jesus as my savior. The weight of the world's now lifted off my shoulders. I want you to put the letter C there. Maybe you're here and you're a believer and you've maybe been baptized or haven't been baptized, but you want to maybe come be a part of this church and, and go through a, a dinner next Sunday afternoon called Discover First and say, I want to become a part of this fellowship here. Put the letter D and you say, well, Pastor, I don't, have any, I don't have any decision today. Well, then just leave it blank. Put your name and we'll pray for you that God will help you. We want everyone to fill this out. And as you leave in a moment, there are receptacles all throughout our property here. We want you to put all of these in. And people, listen, if everyone does this, this could give courage to someone who really, really needs to make a decision for Christ. Father, do what only you can do in Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's stand and let's sing because he lives. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.